a listener production. Hey, I'm sports journalist Sam Squires. Welcome to On Her Game in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. On Her Game is a space where I get to share the stories of our incredible female athletes to try to learn more about the person behind the athlete. I'm excited to partner with Puma to uncover how their female sporting icons have reached the top of their fields, the challenges they've faced along the way, the boundaries they've had to push through, the glass ceilings they've had to smash, as well as the hopes, dreams and fearless attitudes that have shaped the women they are today. Together, we'll make sure women are seen, heard and treated as equals both in sport and in life. In this episode, I speak with CEO of Netball Victoria, Rosie King. Rosie is the type of leader many aspire to be and many more aspire to work for. The CEO of Netball Victoria is one of the most influential leaders in Australian sport. She's held senior management roles across many corporations and industries, including aviation, tourism, retail and elite sport. In 2010, Rosie joined Geelong Football Club and made headlines when she became the first woman to serve as acting CEO of an AFL club. It lit a fire in Rosie and soon she was appointed in her role of Netball Victoria. A game changer throughout her career is the elevation of women and women's sports where she's carving out an incredible legacy. She's passionate about equality in sport, levelling the playing field for female sports and female leaders, as well as overseeing the complete professionalisation of elite netball. The sports leadership was a world away from where Rosie thought she would be as a little girl. I always probably thought I would go into that sort of caring and nurturing type role in terms of, you know, nursing or teaching or or that sort of thing. But the world away from CEO yeah. football. <laughs> True. But there was also a, a real adventurous spirit. Um, and so I ended up um, working for an airline because I realised that um, I loved to travel, but I couldn't afford to do it. Um, so I want. I had to get a job in the um, in the travel industry, and that was sort of on the back of a of a getting on the Greyhound bus and travelling around Australia when I was about nineteen. I can remember my poor parents waving me off at the ANSET terminal, <laughs> saying, "Be good, be safe," you know. And um, and I had a wonderful experience and came back from that experience and said, "Gee, I, I really want to see more." Um, and yeah, I, right. I, you know, I, I think maybe if I'd had my time. Again, maybe I would have been a travel writer or done something completely <laughs> different like that. But um, yeah, I really probably grew into the work that I'm doing now. So going from you know travel industry, and I then um, evolved into doing human resource management. Uh, that was really my um, my career path. Uh, from university? Well, actually, so I was the first person in my family to go to university, but I didn't do um, uni straight after school. I actually worked straight after school. I was a dental nurse. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah. And um, and I had a, a wonderful um, time of that, and it was through that experience that I, I took some time and, and went travelling and got that travel bug and then left left nursing and then went into into the airline industry for a period of time, which actually took me over to Vanuatu. Um, so I had okay. two years living in Vanuatu in Port Vila. Um, cool. And I worked for Air Vanuatu um, and yep. um, I helped to set up the, um, the flight attendant uh, training 
um, and recruitment process there. And uh, it was actually um, a wonderful experience. And I can remember, you know, before the first flight back to Australia, uh, we had to drive around and pick up all the girls and we'd have to drive down little tracks. And like, this is in the 80s, Sam, and it was all pretty <laughs> rustic. You know, you have to drive down and pick up the girls from the villages and, you know, get to the aircraft, et cetera. And um, it, was, it was another world. It was an amazing experience. And I've been back many, many times and I've loved every part of that. Um, and then came back to Australia and really got my teeth into some study and um, and got involved in human resources and, and worked my way through industries in that human resources role, um, which then I suppose naturally morphs into organisational development, promoting and developing organisations through the effort of people and really then the strategy aspect of it. So going from that people orientation, looking at everything through that lens of the worker and then developing organisational strategies and structures to enable growth and progression through that piece. Well, in those roles, you held senior positions with Sovereign Hill Museums, Sports Girl and Sports Craft Group, Air Vanuatu, which is just talked about, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel, Sport New Zealand, and then you landed at the Geelong Cats. What attracted you to Geelong and taking up that role? Well, as you mentioned, I was at Sport New Zealand for, um, for a period of time. So as a family, so um, my husband and we've got one son who was then um, about eight. We travelled over to, to New Zealand. We thought, wouldn't it be great to have an experience like that as a family? So we just sort of packed up lock, stock and barrel and had that experience. And I landed at um, Sport New Zealand. And that was an amazing experience because I... I worked with um, the sports to help um, develop their efficacy in an, a range of areas. So a capability team, we used to go in and we'd basically do a SWOT on the sport and we'd say, you know, look at their strategy, their finances, their governance, their leadership, how they were engaging with sponsors, what they were delivering and really kind of coming up with a bit of a blueprint for improvement. And so that that really gave me that opportunity to do deep dives into a business to say, how can they get better uh, and what's stopping them moving forward? And part of that process was to actually restructure their high-performance uh, system uh, for sport in New Zealand at the time. And so I got to work in you know cricket New Zealand and rugby and netball New Zealand and rowing and all sorts of sports. That was you know, and sports and industry. And so, you know, you, if you've got a bit of a blueprint doesn't really matter what sport it is, you're still talking the same blueprint. And so coming back into Australia, I saw the role at, at the Cats and um, it really appealed to me, um, Sam, because it was the general manager of people and culture and it enabled me to really, I suppose, flex my muscle in some ways in terms of really applying the things that I had learned over the journey into a system that was very, very good. Uh, so to improve it, it had to be very, very good to improve it. And the CATS had a wonderful culture and a very values-based organisation. And I just love the organisation uh, at the footy club. The AFL has a lot of hubris because it's such a big, big organisation with lots of reach and lots of expectations. And it was a really great learning ground for me. It was really, mm. really good. What did you get most out of that? I I think I gained 
a little, I gained some confidence uh, in my own ability while I was there. And I also learned that you can't do it on your own and leadership is not in isolation. So you can't be an isolated leader um, in an organisation that's a very complex organisation. You have to be very connected, but also you've got to rely on the strength of the other people around you. So you've got to recruit really, really well because they're going to make you look really, really good. <laughs> <laughs> the obvious question would be, what was it like being in that male-dominated environment mm. of Australian rules football in a leadership position? You know, it's interesting because... One of the things that I think I brought to it was um, a great deal of care and attention to the individuals and the care and attention to individuals then has to morph into the care and attention for the team. Um, and the notion of team in corporations, there's, um, there's a curiosity um, in business about why do teams work? So what, what are the things that and the levers that you have to pull to make a team work really well. So I think I, I actually learned that aspect. But, you know, like I, I was old enough to be the player's mum, you know, <laughs> not that I wanted to be seen as, as, um, as their, their mother because that would not be the way that I would want to be perceived in a, in a business organisation. But it did also provide that, that sense that, look, I'm just, here to help, I'm just here to help you guys. And I want to put the right systems in place. I want to put the right people and processes in place to make you as successful as you can be. And that wasn't just about the athlete group. It was also about the the corporate group as well. And because I was coming from that people orientation, my views and opinions were regarded, not dismissed, because that was my subject matter expertise. And so my gender never really came into it. Um, it was my opinions that mattered. And, you know, I'm forever grateful to the cats to give me the the opportunity to find my feet at that stage of my life. In 2013, Brian Cook took extended lead, the CEO of Geelong Cats. He was doing a course at Harvard, which you've gone on and done yes. as well since. Um, and he gave you the role of acting CEO <laughs> when he left, you became effectively the first female CEO of an AFL club, which then, of course, made, it was an acting, in an acting role, but it made, um, made headlines. It made, not every time it makes headlines when someone acts up <laughs> in an AFL club, but in your case, it did. Um, it's a big responsibility for anyone, but um, did you find it was even bigger responsibility because your gender, whether you liked it or not, was involved mm. in this. It became headline news. Yeah, yeah. it was. Um, looking back now, I'm glad I didn't know what I was about to sort of step into. You know, I always felt that I would get, you know, found out for being a fraud um, in terms of my intellect or my capacity or those sorts of things. Of course, that's silly, um, but it's it's kind of how it all plays out. It's one of those, um, the, the crazy monkey that jumps around in your mind in the middle of the night. And so when Brian asked me if I would take on the role, my immediate reaction was, gosh, Cookie, do you think I could do it? And he was like, mate, I wouldn't be asking you if, you, if I didn't think you could. <laughs> and I, you know, I'm almost embarrassed to confess that because um, it does um, speak to those 
feelings of inadequacy um, and fear when you are offered a tremendous opportunity that's going to take courage to step into. And so... Um, why is it that women feel that way? Because I've yeah. I've hosted so many leadership summits, I've sat on so many panels, and it is mind-boggling. I feel like every female leader talks about this yeah. imposter syndrome that they they suffer. What is it oh. about? Is it is it a gender thing there? Like because I've so many female leaders could relate. To yeah, that. I don't think it is just it for females. I I do think that there is a sense. Um, across all gender, but it is pre- de- uh, definitely predominant in women. And I've seen it at netball where I've had opportunities for people to step up in from manager to, to general manager, and I've actually had to tap, tap people on the shoulder and say, listen, mate, why don't you apply for this? And they react in the same way that I did, Sam. Do you think I could do that, Rosie? It's like, yes, I do really do think you could do that. And so this notion of needing um, someone to really be a champion for you or to to actually believe in you is part of it. And I was very, very fortunate that I had that leadership at the Cats that did believe in me and saw the capacity over a period of years that I, I would um, find my feet in that role. In reflection, it wasn't just me in that role. I had that ex- amazing executive team around um, to support me and guide me in that as well. So we were faced with a range of really, really difficult challenges during that period of time when Cookie was away. You know, the tragic death of Phil Walsh, where we had to deal with how does that impact the team this weekend? What are we going to do? If it was us, how would we want the um, the team to to react? Um, how would we want AFL to support us in sharing the points, not playing, you know, so that people could um, go through their own grieving process? So that was something that was unprecedented and incredible. And then we also had to deal with the terrible booing of um, Adam Goods. And it was announced that he wanted to return to play um, at the Cats home game where we were hosting Sydney. Uh, and so we had to work with the um, the AFL, Adam as an athlete, his player manager and the Swans, and also our athlete group to say, how do you want to embrace Goodsey coming back? So what are the symbols that we can do to welcome him back into, into our sport and into our home? And there's no blueprint for all that. Sam, you've just got to, you've got to work things through. You've got to put yourself in other people's shoes. You've got to ask lots of questions. And through that questioning and the listening, you've really got to have that open mind. And that's something that I really learned because asking questions is not a failure of leadership. It's actually something that leaders need to do more of because we don't know the answers. And certainly when I went into netball, I was coming into, um, even though I played it as a kid, you know, it was a completely new realm for me. And I actually had to ask a lot of questions. And there's sort of this natural feeling that, well, if you're a leader, you should know the answer. You know, well, you don't, you know, because you're running a new new business. So I think think the, the, the questioning and the listening is really important. I think that's something that female leaders are really, really good at. A lot of female leaders, when they're trailblazers and they're put into that position of being one of the first and you effectively the first female mm. CEO, 
um, a lot of them talk about shouldering that responsibility and feeling mm. this responsibility not only to do the job well for yourself, for Rosie mm. King, but knowing for other women as well, knowing that whether you like it or not, people are going to not look at it as mm. Rosie King's achievement or Rosie King's failure or it, but as a female mm. win or a female failure. Yeah. Did you feel that as well? I did. Um, but, you know, the world didn't spin off its axis. <laughs> um, the cat still survived my, my, my time in the chair. And I was really proud of the footy club to be able to be that organisation that would have that. And, you know, that, that was 2015. Isn't it absolutely terrible that we have not seen that? I mean, I know... We're very hard on our female leaders in sport. We're seeing more and more women getting opportunities in the governance role in football, you know, and today we hear that um, Dr. Bridie O'Donnell has just been appointed to the um, committee or the board of uh, Collingwood Footy Club. And, of course, we see Peggy O'Neill and other, you know, tremendous women being elevated to board director uh, roles of clubs, you know, football and, and rugby, et cetera. But where are they in the administration, Sam? We're not saving lives here. You know, mm-hmm. it, there is a, a mm. way that you run, a, run an organisation, grow an organisation, lead an organisation. Women are just as capable of doing it as men. But, you know, gee, we're tough on our female leaders and we saw that with rugby, with Raylan Castles. And let me say, there's been a lot of um, missteps by male leaders in sporting organisations over the journey. Mm-hmm. So um, I just... That's that's really frustrating to me that we're not seeing more women get those opportunities to lead a tier one sport. I see all the time and I talk to friends in leadership positions how we always talk of like we've got to train up more leaders, female sport leaders. We've got to get them more into leadership programs and things as though there's no one out there. And I know I've got friends and, and myself, I think, and I'll ask you the question, do we have to train up more women to be leaders or are they out there? They're just not getting that opportunity mm. to be the leader. Mm. I think that it a lot of it comes down to this notion of we need people to tap us on the shoulder. So when I first started at Netball Vic, we did a sort of a listen and learn session and we actually asked our organisation, which is about 97% female, I actually asked what stops you or stalls your career and what's stopping your progression and what did they need from me to um, to help them grow and go into higher leadership roles? And it did come back down to we need someone to help us, to elevate us. And, you know, as they say, the rising tide floats all boats. And so I'm really proud to say that in our executive team, other than myself and the COO, all of our female executives have grown from middle manager to executive level over that period of time that I've been with them. And that's just enabling them, giving them the platform to be able to step in to learn how to lead. And look, there are going to be, you know, fails along the way. And that's actually okay. I've come around to that notion now that, look, you know, actually failing is part of that learning. Uh, and we're mm. all going to fail at some time. Let, let me say, we don't want monumental fails, but gee, we learn from <laughs> from it. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we there are amazing leaders, both genders, but in our world, we want to see more and more female leaders coming through. And they are there, you know, well, gosh, we get stuff done. It's amazing. 
the is there an unconscious bias then that stops women from getting to those levels? Like, yes, maybe women need or some women need a tap on the shoulder to give that encouragement and to know that mm. they can do that. But, you know, you talk about why have we got so many female leaders? We're getting more mm. in the governance of, of AFL and in um, the male sports, but why not in the administration? Mm. And you say they're there. Is there an unconscious bias that stops them from getting I there? Think that, I think there is, but I think there's also, you know, women's lives, and I don't want to be, you know, pro- one gender or another, because obviously there are tremendous leaders and and um, and people stepping in from all gender. But there is this notion of trade off for women. So, um, you know, as working mums, um, that when you go on parental leave, you have to trade off your your um, level of responsibility to come back into a part time role that gives you flexibility to, you know, go and pick up kids, drop kids, do whatever you need to do with kids and be that primary caregiver. And I find that there is this this view that, okay, if, you, if you're going to go away and, you know, um, have your children, have a family, that then you can only come back in a part-time role and that can't be in a, a, at an executive level. And we've really um, challenged that at Netball Victoria. Um, two of our um, executives have gone off and had babies and come back and been part-time executives. And when their time is right and it fits in with them and their family commitments, they've come back full-time. So we've actually done lots of part-time work or job sharing or support, work from home when you need to, et cetera. And this notion of flexibility has to be something that's really ingrained in an organisation to enable um, women to have that opportunity to step up. Are you a believer in quotas when we talk about unconscious bias, women needing a tap on the shoulder? Where do you stand on quotas? Okay, I have done a backflip on quotas. Right. Right. So when I was in my previous world of um, people and culture, I always felt targets were the right approach. But now that the pace of change is glacial, we need quotas um, because it forces individuals and organisations to dig deeper, to put candidates in place for selection. And I'm not just talking about the token girl being interviewed for a role. Um, because that has been my one of my experiences over the journey, um, and you can always you always feel that that's that's what it's all about. Um, and so, I actually do believe that quotas are important. Mm. Going back to when you were in um, at Geelong, Brian Cook said that you will be an a, a CEO of the AFL one day. Was that then a goal of yours? Did, you know, acting when you got that chance and you got a little bit of a hint mm. of it, you've like, this is what I yeah. want. Yeah, I definitely said to Cookie when he got back, you have let the genie out of the bottle here, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> I um, Because, you know, the, this notion of confidence that it's almost, um, you know, for women, it's almost like you've got to do it once, know that you can do it, and then you want to do it again. That's that sort of action learning cycle. So try, reflect learn, improve, 
try again, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that that action learning cycle for me was what gave me that confidence to look a little bit broader than the cats. And honestly, Sam, I thought I was going to be there forever. Um, (laughs) But with this opportunity became a growth opportunity for me. And so, you know, I had... um, I'd completed my studies, my master's. I'd got opportunities to go overseas myself and and do some further study. And, you know, I I really felt that I had um, committed to a life of, you know, practical learning as well as theoretical learning. And I felt, you know, for probably the first time in a long time that I really had the knowledge to apply to grow the organisation and move it forward and advocate for it strongly. And so, yes, I did have a um, a desire to go on and be a CEO in an AFL club, but there are so few and far between. And in Victoria, as you know, there's only a handful of jobs. I don't want to live out of the state again. Um, you know, I don't need. I don't really want to have to go and relocate and move my family again and and do that. So. You know, you, you, your opportunities are narrowed and um, as a result. And they're really good jobs. And there's not a lot of movement in those CEO roles. So it's a very, very narrow pyramid when it comes to the organisational structure of an AFL club. And it's getting tighter and tighter because of the changes to the salary caps and the spends that you can do. Uh, and so, you know, when... Netball Victoria, I was approached by a recruiter to say, hey, listen, we think that this would be a really good opportunity for you. I was like, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm all good. I'm happy where I am. And to this recruiter's credit, he said, look, please, I really think, Rosie, this is a good opportunity for you to be a CEO. And I asked for 48 hours to do my due diligence. I rang my trusted friends to say, what do you think? I did my due diligence on what I could access to have a look at the organisation and its finances and its strategies, et cetera, and actually thought there's some really good challenges here for me. Uh, And I have to say, I've loved every minute of it. (laughs) (laughs) I have done things at Netball Victoria that I would never have had the chance to do in an AFL club the advocacy that I've been able to do. You know, we achieved a groundbreaking investment from the state government three years ago for the redevelopment of the state home of netball, which was $64 million. And that sort of advocacy at government level and really um, being able to, I mean, probably genuinely articulate why it's so important and the value of our sport um, to the community was really wonderful and and I have um, lunch or brekkie or coffee with uh, with Brian every now and then still, we you know, good mates and, you know, I remember ringing him saying, mate, you can't believe how I've got more members than you have and I've got more money in the <laughs> bank than you have. This is an amazing sport, you know, and, and um, the first year that I was there, we had 115,000 paid up members of netball. You know, that was extraordinary and we had good money in the bank and that's just because of generations of of efforts of women driving our sport across the across the country and to their credit they've they've set an amazing legacy. What was Netball's biggest challenge when you started in that role? Mm. I think that there was a, a real worry at the time of AFLW coming into play. 
And I, I, you know, I would think now that one of the reasons why I may have been an attractive candidate for the job was because of my insights into the AFL world. And Netball was, you know, was nervous about this juggernaut coming in to potentially, you know, take all the netballers to AFLW and um, because our member, our um, organisation is is a bottom-up driven sport. So half of our revenue comes from those paying members, which are the people that play or officiate netball. So if our membership base is disrupted or reduced, so is our, our revenue stream. And the thing that got us through COVID was having some really good cash reserves. So the notion of being, having disruption coming in was, um, was really quite worrying. But what we did was we, we really decided, look, this is actually a really great thing for women. Um, to have another sport come in and be professional and well-organised and give them opportunities, like bring it on. Let girls go and play soccer or footy or, you know, table tennis or, you know, tackle sports or, you know, whatever the case may be. Let them have that opportunity. But if we focus on what we can control, which is making sure that we've got good compliant courts that are safe to play on, not th- not crappy old courts that are cracked with, you know, tree roots popping up, slippery courts in the wet, etc. If we've got our facility piece right, if we've got our umpiring piece right, where we've got good qualified, confident umpires who are, who are well trained um, and well briefed, if we've got great coaches that um, can coach, care, develop people, like people will come back to us. Let us, let them go and have their, have their experiences and sample sports like, like many boys do. Boys tend to sample a lot of sports. I know with my own son, Sam, you know, he played footy, he played soccer, he played cricket, you know, he, um, he, he rode, you know, all of those sorts of things and eventually landed on a sport of choice, whereas girls tend not to have that same breadth. And I think it's actually really healthy that they do now. And so we just focus very much on what we could control, how we could influence. And we are seeing it now, Sam, that we are, you know, we're, our numbers are really good. They're building in all the different cohorts and across the state. We've got just as many... Um, people playing netball in in regional and rural Victoria as, as we do in metropolitan uh, Melbourne, and so the numbers are really strong. And we have a great relationship with the other sports as well, so we don't compete. In terms of the elite, like we've obviously had five years of the SunCorp Super Netball into the fifth year now, which really elevated it to a new level. But what are the challenges that the elite netballers mm. have at the moment? And almost, can you talk to the fact that? Netballers are still part-time mm. athletes. Mm. How do we break free? Oh, well, we've got to get more money in the system. And our next broadcast deal is really, really important um, that we get a fantastic elevation to contribute more into, into um, the athletes. So it was really interesting when I first started at Netball, I actually asked, why aren't these athletes full-time? I was reassured, well, you know, our athletes, um, you know, they train part-time, but they also, you know, they go to university, they've got jobs, 
Um, some of them have families, et cetera, et cetera. And so we're enabling our athletes to be able to um, um, only play part-time because they're preparing for life after netball. And I thought, what a silly notion oh. because you know, at the end of the day, oh, I know it's a, it's a shocker, isn't it? <laughs> so that's awful. from netball. <laughs> Imagine what the net, if like the netballers who want to be full-time athletes heard that that's the that, reason. I know. Like, so, we don't want to do this. We want to be full-time <laughs> athletes. We've got the rest of our lives I for that. I know, I know. So, you know, and AFL, of course, what we see now is with the um, with the male athletes, um, um, is that, you know, they're full-time athletes, yet they have a dedicated period of time each week to go off and do their trades or do uni or do study or work experience or get mentored or whatever it is. And they get paid for that, which is exactly as it should be. So we've definitely got to do that. We need probably more, um, I would say, we definitely more need more teams. We need to grow our Suncorp Super Netball licences. So for the next five years, we're going to you know, potentially play the same teams for the same amount of rounds. Well, we need more netball being visible. So we can only do that by having um, more licences being granted. And, you know, quite honestly, I love the, the dynamics of the uh, the entertainment product. So I think in netball, there's very much the traditional piece, which is the international rules that we play within. So no super shots and no timeouts and all that sort of thing, rolling subs like we do with the um, the entertainment product, the um, Suncorp Super Netball. But we need to do, you know, more innovation. So, you know, when you come to a Melbourne Vixens game, for example, you know, we've got music going, we've got the dancers going, we've got fireworks going off. It's all it's all colour, you know, movement um, and, and and great fun. There's a wonderful vibe in the, in the arenas. And so we want to make sure that we're selling tickets um, because the last thing we want to do is broadcast into an empty stadium. So we want to make sure that we, we've got eyes on the TV and eyes um, and people in the, in the arenas. So we, we just can only do that by injecting more and more money into the system. I'll get to that in a moment. I want to pick up on what you were saying about this almost acceptance of mediocrity mm. in women's sports, mm. I think is what you're trying to tell me when they were like, mm. oh, no, but like that we're enabling them yeah. to to do both. They're just justifying mm. this stalling of the professionalism of, of women's sports. Mm. And I remember I wrote an article years ago, I was probably 2014 or 2015, and I asked the question whether women's sports have Stockholm syndrome in the fact that they're so used to being treated so badly. Mm. And I used the example of the media that they no longer sought anything better than that treatment. Mm. Um, and that was kind of stalling the progression. Mm. Was that the same for netball in that that justification of why they're part-time athletes? Yes, I do think so, Sam. I think that there has been a culture over the generations where uh, we make do. The administrators and the volunteers of netball, because we're such a big volunteer community, you know, we can uh, that volunteer community can only do so much. Um, and so, you know, we've always worked, you know, rolled sleeves up, got things done, really worked on the smell of an oily rag, which is an absolute credit to the fact that now netball is the most popular sport and has been for a long time and, you know, let it be forever more the most popular sport for girls and women in Australia. Um, you can be a world champion when you play netball. Um, you can't be a world champion when you play AFL. And so we have 
survived on the smell of an oily rag for a long time. And there is this cultural element to that. And and I think in some ways a bit of a pride in it as well that we that we can do lots of things um, in that regard. But it does, I think, also hold us back. And we need to keep elevating our voice. And when I first started at Netball and I started on this campaign of let's get this money now for for the State Netball Hockey Centre, there was almost like um, a sense of you can't be aggressive, you can't be pushy, you um, you can't be overly assertive in your ask, you know, because that's not how we operate. But... We can, what we can be is articulate, uh, artic- oh, there you go. What a stuff up there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness me. Um, you know, you can articulate what, what you need to articulate. You can have your evidence. You can have all of those things and good humour and, um, and, you know, authenticity and actually just tell the story. This is the data. You cannot argue with fact. This is why we need it. We've outgrown it. We're turning girls away. This is contrary to government's policies and and views about gender equity. If we're turning people away, if we're having forced buys and um, and short quarters because we just don't have the facilities, that is um, counteractive to what government really wants. You say the key is we need more money in the sport. Where does that money come mm. from? And a brand sponsors. Are they understanding the power of women's sports or are they still, I I guess, a bit foggy lensed with the same problems that you found when you first arrived in that kind of not unleashing the potential Mm. of the sport Mm. and supporting Mm. it? It's a good question. I believe that the sponsors um, understand the power of what we have to offer. Uh, We have got amazing sponsors um, connected to um, the Suncorp Super Netball, to the Diamonds. And, you know, if I speak on the behalf of Netball Victoria and the Vixens, we've got national brands that absolutely understand that they can connect with, you know, in Victoria, we have, you know, when we combine our membership um, with the traditional netball plus our social netball and netball being played in schools, we can reach over 300,000 individuals. That is massive. So if if a sponsor wants to speak or a brand wants to speak to our demographic, and as we know, women make decisions about how money is going to be spent in, an, in a household, why wouldn't you want to be involved in it? You know, so what we have is the Vixens are a wonderful window face to our sport you know, it's the it's the dream dollar. You know, it's that professional athlete, professional sport. You know, brought nationally broadcast, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But what we often find when brands come to us to talk about it um, is that when we start talking about the reach into community, they go, actually, that's probably a better alignment for what we want to achieve. So sometimes the investment that we thought may come into the Vixens program actually ends up being into the grassroots program. I think when I mentioned earlier about the growth required in the Suncorp Super Netball in terms of more teams and full-time athletes is that you only have certain product that you can then sell um, because you can't, you know, keep sending your athletes out to be an ambassador here, an ambassador there. There's only so many hours that you can do. There's only so many teams that you can broadcast, so many games that you can broadcast or, um, you know, opportunities for sponsors to to really deep dive into the system. So 
that's why we need to keep growing so that we can keep growing our, our revenue base as well. Can you talk to the media support as well? It's interesting because when I when I first started um, at Netball, I went to see one of the national um, broadsheets um, and um, asked, just asked the question, you know, I don't see a lot of females in the back pages of sport. Now, you know, having said that, this is back in 2016, so the world has changed a bit. Um, a bit. A bit, mm. yeah, a little bit, mm. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I actually asked the question, what do we need to do to help you get more women in the back pages? Um, and it was made really clear to me that what you need to do is you've got to generate story because when you're up against AFL, which we are in Victoria, they've got all those, they've got 18 clubs with massive media teams actually generating stories that then feeds into, directly feeds into the newspapers. And so there's not, they don't have to finesse a lot because it's already written, developed. And you know, if you think about the the depth and breadth and the might of the AFL, for example, um, in their media team, and then you, you you think, okay, well, that puts it in perspective because how can our little one or two people <laughs> um, generate those stories on a constant basis that is going to be attractive enough to be in the papers? So it's very difficult to um, to get space in the in the traditional media. And at that stage, you know, I, w- I was told, well, look, you know, I understand that there's a lot of eating disorders in netball, um, perhaps we can do a story on that. And it's like, you know what, that's the story I don't want to do because that's not just about netball. That's about every other elite athlete um, that, you, you know, you could you could deep dive into. Why wouldn't you do something broader if you're worried about eating disorders? Don't just tag it onto the girls. Uh, and so it was something that we didn't want to do. But as we're seeing now, the untraditional media um, is now picking up on it and, you know, social media and we're getting... New media. Yeah, thank mm. you. New media is picking up on it and all of a sudden traditional media is starting to go, oh, okay, well, actually this is something that we want to do. But unfortunately we're still seeing a lot of clickbait through that as well. So, you know, I get really annoyed when I see, you know, terms like wags, you know, and um, and these sorts of things that are, you know, it just puts people in a box and it's it's just unnecessary. And um, so, yes, we, we want new media to help push old media to a, a higher level as well. Moving on with the media, the Witness Fearless campaign that the Vixens did with Puma was so powerful. Mm, it was wonderful. How did that all come about? Yeah, that w- that that just gave us an, the gold moment uh, <laughs> well, they say never waste a wa- never waste a crisis. So what happened is, um, you know, one of the newspapers did a, um, uh, a a small piece on you know what was coming up in the t. It was in the TV guide actually, and uh, the writer had said, you know, once a glamour sport for for girls, um, netball is on show, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the um, the comment was picked up. And it got a bit of traction on social media. So Puma, um, which is one of our, our one of our amazing sponsors, we talked to them and they said, "Look, this is just not on. We, you know, we're just not going to accept this." So we did this really um, great thing about you know no glamour here, and we showed you know really strong, fearless um, 
girls playing netball. And it was a really strong campaign. And Puma, you know, they did apparel for us. We put it on the front of our playing strip, you know, where the girls were in the hub last year. Um, the Vixens, and it's pretty unusual that you would have a um, a brand campaign or some sort of national statement like that on the front of a the most precious piece of apparel, which is your playing guernsey or playing dress, and it was called it was Witness Fearless, and it really it it gained an enormous amount of traction, and we're we're rolling it out again this year, but we've strengthened it, um, and. What we've done is we've found a sort of what I would think is a bit of a red thread through the organisation. So fearless, it doesn't necessarily have to be about, you know, fearless athletes in in the style of play, but it can also be about fearless girls coming out and challenging some of the social norms. Uh, It could be a fearless person who has had to overcome adversity or to really put themselves out and be uncomfortable to to achieve something. So we're, we're asking people to find their own fearless. And so that'll be right across our system uh, at Netball Vic this year, right into grassroots, right through to the elite level, which is, um, which is really exciting. Yeah, I've just put up the ad and it says, once just for schoolgirls and workplace bonding, this is now a full glamour sport for many. I guess that shows us as well what we were talking about with the power of of social media and new media to say, well, no, like you can't put that in your paper. We're going to call Mm -hmm. out that behaviour, which I think in the past would have kind of just been dismissed or brushed over or just been like, oh, okay, wouldn't have called it out. But I feel like netball and women in sport have really found a voice. Mm -hmm. Another recent thing that happened was Ricky Stewart's comments, um, the NRL Raiders coach, um, made some comments um, and he said, if you can't have a tough conversation with your players, you might as well coach netball. Those comments were relayed secondhand from Paul Kent on NRL 360. But again, it's almost a really dismissive Mm. way of Mm. talking about netball. What was your reaction to those comments? Yeah, it's pretty ill-informed really, isn't it? Um, And it does show... um, uh, show a level of disregard um, and dismissiveness. Um, and what was also disappointing about that is that the people who were engaged in the interview didn't have the wherewithal or the or the um, the opportunity to sort of sit back and say, "Hey, you know, come on, that's that's not cool." And let's talk about something in a different way here. And But I understand that because when you see unconscious bias or you experience it or you you see something that is makes you feel uncomfortable or you hear a comment, you have to almost take a bit of a breath and, and really centre yourself to say, this is not good. And I think all of us have been tripped up along the journey to say, had I had my time again? that's what I would have said or done or demonstrated. And um, so I can't blame those individuals for not calling it out. But what I do find disappointing that that his apology was pretty, you know, disingenuous and it was, you know, very dismissive and dis- and that became disrespectful. Something that you're very passionate about and this feeds into what we're talking about because messages matter. The message that Ricky Stewart was sending to the public about little girls, uh, about netball really matters. 
little boys are listening to that, little girls are listening to that, and Sosmo making netball scene in, in a different light. Um, messages matter, and that's something that you're very passionate about, and that's why you want more statues <laughs> of female sports stars. Can you talk to that about your your statues project that you are so passionate I about? I can. And um, so I did. Um, I did some research about how many sporting um, women were immortalised in Melbourne um, versus men because they'd been to the G and, you know, there's often that, oh, I'll meet you at the, you know, the Warnie statue or the whatever statue it is. And I started reflecting on, gee, I don't see many female statues of sports icons. Uh, uh, and so I actually did some um, some desktop research and there are like 27 male sporting icons in Victoria and three women. And I I was shocked um, because, yes, messages matter. What symbol, symbols are important? You know, that whole seeing is believing piece. And it's not that the males don't deserve it. I'm sure all of those um, people who were immortalised and many more are very deserving. But, gee, so are the women. And so we started a campaign on International Women's Day this year, um, which was called Seeing is Believing, and we got some fantastic traction. And since then, I've met with several um, ministers in the Victorian government um, and actually asked for a contribution to the um, to build a statue of a netballer at the John Kane Arena. So John Kane, um, who's obviously one of Victoria's previous premiers, was, yeah, he was a great person for gender equality. He was the the premier that did a lot around equal opportunity employment, but he was also famously um, invited to the, to the races. And at the time, back in those days, you had a line where women couldn't cross um, into the VRC area. And he said, well, look, unless I can take my wife, I'm not coming to the races. So he was um, he was a wonderful champion for women and actually, you know, put his efforts where his heart were. And so I just figure, wouldn't it be great to have a netballer out the front of John Kane Arena, which is where the Vixens play our home games. And it's, it is the, the, um, the arena of professional netball in Victoria. And Sam, I'll let you into a secret here. <laughs> after um, after this little campaign, I was contacted by a um, by an organisation called Statues for Equality, and they said we want to partly fund your statue. And I was like, Oh my god! I think this is spam. You know what's going on here? Yeah. But I actually <laughs> rang them, and and yes, it's um, um, a Victorian sculptor and his wife. Their mission is to have more public art equality in public art around the world. And they recently did a Ruth Bader Ginsburg in New York. They've done a lot of statues. They actually said we would co-fund it. So on the basis of that, I actually went back to government and said, you know, now that I've got co-funding, how about we do two? (laughs) (laughs) So I love it. (laughs) So I said, okay, we'll have a professional, we'll have a contemporary modern day netballer at um, John Kane Arena, and we'll have a historical netball figure at the spiritual home of netball, which is out at Royal Park when we move into our new home of netball in a couple of weeks. So I'm thrilled to tell you, I had a call from <laughs> Minister Pakula um, last week who has 
said that he will match our funding and we are going to get two netballers immortalised um, in the next 12 months. So, Because um, it matters. It matters. It really matters. Oh, Little girls need to see these icons, these female sporting yep. icons immortalised just like they're saying the men immortalised. Exactly. And totally right. And so, you know, so I'm really excited. Um, we've put some great governance around it. I've got right. a wonderful working group who are like, oh, goodness me, how are we going to choose who it's going to be? But, look, that's a nice problem to have. So I think, yeah. you know, again, you know... Cute. And we'll get funding for more. Yeah. For more <laughs> yeah. So why didn't I go for a team? I should have had a team, not yeah. two. <laughs> Seven netballers. So, no, I'm well abs- done. And, I, you know, like yeah, credit well to the Victorian done. government who are really um, supporting this gender equality piece. It's very important. When we talk about equality and, you know, we're trying to... I guess with uh, females in male-dominated sports, um, trying to see growth of the women's games in male-dominated sports. When we look at netball and it is a female-dominated sport, Mm. does netball then need to grow the men's side of their game in order to be equal and I guess in a way avoid in the future being hypocritical Mm. almost? Yeah, absolutely, definitely. Um, And we, um, we work really hard with the Victorian Men's and Mixed League to support them. We are seeing more and more boys playing um, mixed netball in our competitions. So there are rules around that in terms of how many boys can play on the court at the one time and so forth. And only one boy in each court, um, in each third, et cetera, et cetera. We have worked with the men's and mixed league to create a junior competition and support them in that process. But what we really need is um, as a national sport to have a pathway for those guys. So what we have is like, uh, you know, we, our Vixens, when we do pre-season, and I know that the other SSN teams do, they actually play against the the, the state league men's teams because um, we know that they are going to give us a really good game. They're very athletic. Their game is so different. They're fast over the ground. They're athletic. They leap. Their vertical um, leap is unbelievable. But where the they could continue to learn in their in their development is really that accuracy in the shooting um, because that would really complement um, that. And I'm sure there's a lot of fantastic shooters out there that would absolutely, they'll probably kill me. But, um, but you know, we, we, we really need a national competition and pathway for men. If you could be fearless, because I know that's a big theme for you personally um, and for Puma, but if you could be fearless about the future that you want to see, what does your future for netball look like? Oh, look. Your fearless future We are going to grow. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna, How many teams? Oh, full-time athletes? Full-time athletes. You know, those girls, uh, the netballers, well, at the moment, they're, you know, they're remunerated more than other professional athletes. And I, I would love to see all professional female athletes getting their fair share of the the money that goes around sport and getting the recognition that they deserve. I mean, now, you know, our female, uh, the netballers, they are actually world-class athletes. You know, their, their, their athleticism is unbelievable. And I can, I can ask a netballer to go out and represent the organisation, speak to schools, go, do, go and do a sponsorship piece, and I have total confidence that they're going to represent themselves and the sport superbly. 
And, um, you know, I just want the, I want the very best for them that can be. And there are going to be things that happen into the future that I've got no notion about now because the world's going to be different, you know. The opportunities are going to be different and, um, and uh, I want more people playing sport, team sport particularly, because I think that sets you up beautifully for life. Um, and I want netball to be respected um, and feared. Mm, and feared. I like that. And if you could go back and tell that 10-year-old Rosie something, you just get one chance to go back in time and give her one message, what would you tell her? Oof, jeepers. I think it's a bit like uh, don't sweat the small stuff. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah, probably that, I would say. Don't sweat the small stuff because it, you know, makes you second guess yourself all along the journey, mm. doesn't it? Don't marry your first boyfriend. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice. That's it. Yeah, that's <laughs> Rosie, it's been an absolute pleasure, an absolute game changer when it comes to netball and sport as well. Thank you so much for sharing your story with On Her Game. Oh, thank you, Sam. It's been an absolute delight to meet you. On Her Game was presented by me, Sam Squires, producer, Lindsay Green, audio producer, Nikki Sitch, executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. This episode was created in partnership with Puma for the Fearless podcast series. To stay up to date with their incredible female sporting icons, follow at PumaAU on Instagram. And remember, stay fearless. Listener.